Well, welcome to the last week of our early summer series, Flourish, Sexuality, Gender, and the Way of Jesus. So for one last time, I'll do the opening warning, uh, just a reminder that we're talking about some pretty important and yet uh, specific content around sexuality, gender, and the way of Jesus. And so uh, we are going to use some candid terms today. All are welcome to be a part of this, um, but if you're mindful of that with a kid next to you, we do have kids downstairs for a reason. So the resource table is still up and available. Um, again, a reminder, those are, well, there are, there's a stack of three books. Those are for, to be taken. The other ones are mine, but you can look at them and snap a picture of them if you want. Uh, and, and look up some more resources to read. I will also put up at the end of our time today a slide with some websites and some other books and things that I recommend if you want along the way. So in light of all that we've covered over the last six weeks, some of you all have some more practical questions uh, that have come out. Uh, and I would say, I, I gave an opportunity for some questions through Slido, and I would say the umbrella of some of the questions all fall under this category of, what do I do? How do I respond? What action do I take? What does it look like for me to engage our sexual age? And so before I get into some of the specific questions and responses, I wanted to ground some of that conversation in something deeper, and something broader and richer. Uh, so I wanna remind us again today, as we talk about this, I wanna remind us of the way of Jesus and I want to remind us that the way of Jesus is the way of love. And I know that in our culture, saying that means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And when I say that the way of Jesus is the way of love, I don't mean that in some hazy, foggy, esoteric kind of way. Oh, let's just love. What is love? I don't know, but it's love. I think I, I would call us to the way of Jesus that is the way of love, and we've been given an understanding of what love looks like in the person of Jesus and through the scriptures. Biblical love. Well, what is that? I'm glad I asked. Open your Bibles to 1 <laughs> Corinthians chapter 13. So right at the beginning of that, before that, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll start there and then roll into chapter 13. It'll be up here on the screen as well. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, Paul, the apostle, writing to the ancient church in Corinth, he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And then he moves forward into chapter 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I am nothing. Now again, in context, always important to read scripture in context, in context, Paul is smack dab in the middle of his instruction to this church, specifically about the practice of spiritual gifts when they gather. But he's giving them a corrective. He's correcting their practice. Because for them as a church, 
they began to think that they were doing great by experiencing all sorts of supernatural activity. And they were experiencing amazing, profound, beautiful kingdom of God things. They were experiencing tongues and prophecy and miracles and healing, all sorts of clear, visible, supernatural, God-honoring activity, all of that which is good. But Paul the Apostle, again, by the Holy Spirit, he's trying to reframe their vision of success as a church. He's reshaping their vision of greatness. He's readdressing their vision of significance and importance. And so he uses some bold words and he uses some hyperbole. He, he paints these pictures that are pretty drastic. And he starts chipping away at these people around how they're to live and what greatness really is. What does true greatness look like? What does true greatness sound like, feel like, act like? Or to ask it a different way, like what's a win for the church of Jesus Christ? And again, I know the context is about the, the use of spiritual gifts in a gathering. That's the context. But I think that what he has to say cross-applies to many environments and particularly to this conversation about sexuality and gender. Let's go ahead and just walk through these things. This is the, the contrast of love. Paul begins talking about greatness through eloquence. Greatness through, through our words. Who doesn't like that? Dynamic speaking, charisma, woo. The tongues of men are of angels. This is gifted persuasive speech, spellbinding oration, TED talk level communication, or ecstatic experiences, a prayer language, speaking in tongues, basically using your tongue in a way that is beautiful and profound. Tongues of men, tongues of angels. I know most human beings don't like to hear themselves speak. You ever heard your own voice on a recording or a video or you're like, do I really sound like that? But there are those that love to hear the sound of their voice and they're like, I sound amazing. <laughs> Eloquence applied to the sexuality conversation. It could be being right, winning the argument, having the right words at the right time. Paul says, if you don't have love undergirding your impressive speech, you're a noisy, clanging gong. I thought about bringing a gong up here today, just hitting it. I chickened out. If love is not undergirding what you do, even your eloquent words, the right speech, impressive speech, even supernatural activity through your mouth becomes a gong show, loud, obnoxious clatter. Paul moves on. He talks about greatness through knowledge, covers these different realms of knowledge. You could have prophetic powers. And Paul, if you read 1 Corinthians, is very pro-prophecy. Read 1 Corinthians 14, the next chapter. He wishes that everyone would prophesy. He is very pro-prophecy. Foretelling or forthtelling for God. Speaking on behalf of God. Things that you may not ordinarily know. It's powerful. 
oftentimes met with, how did you know that? Prophetic powers are dynamic. He says you could understand all mysteries. You could understand all mysteries. I would take knowing half of the mysteries of my life. Or he just names it. You could have all knowledge. You can know it all. Read all the books. Take the class. Have all the degrees. Have doctrinal accuracy and orthodoxy. You can have knowledge, and knowledge is power. So speaking of gender and sexuality, you can have all the books read, all the topics covered, all the verses memorized, all the doctrinal categories neatly stacked properly, all studies, all research, all proofs, all arguments airtight, but without love underneath it, Paul says, I'm nothing. Do you have an orthodox understanding of scripture figured out? Do you have your Trinitarian theology nailed? Can you articulate the biblical sexual ethic? Do you understand gender roles in the church? Can you articulate the distinction of homosexuality, the LGBTQ community, and all the arguments that flow out of that? Can you parse Greek, Hebrew, chapter, and verse? Paul says, without love, I'm nothing. You can have all knowledge. You can know it all, and without love, you're nothing. What does does knowledge without love look like? Prideful arrogance. It weaponizes knowledge as a tool against others. It elevates you to a higher position, a higher status, a higher plane. And this is often the blind spot of the church is that we equate knowledge with maturity. That just because I read a book or read the Bible even, that I'm mature. Not necessarily. Just because I've listened to a podcast, I've grown. Not necessarily. You can actually know a lot and be spiritually immature. You can actually know a lot and be a jerk. How about greatness through faith? He takes a a page from Jesus' playbook If you remember, Jesus talked about having the faith of a mustard seed that you could speak to a mountain, mountain be moved, and the mountain would move. Great faith. Paul says, imagine you have that kind of faith, that kind of ability, faith that moves mountains, faith that has vision, faith that takes risks, faith that can see into the unknown, the not yet, to believe the unseen as though it were real. Imagine you had that kind of faith, that you were a visionary, dream big dreams, move mountains for the kingdom of God. Without love, Paul says, it's a big pile of nothingness. And some have made faith the big thing or mountain moving the the big thing or change and transformation the big thing, believing the impossible, and Paul doesn't follow along. He keeps going. How about sacrificial giving? Verse three here says, if I give away all that I have. Studies have shown that the average American gives $800 a year. Less than 10% of Christians give 10% or more to Christian churches or causes. But that's not the standard Paul is even talking about here. He's not even talking about tithing. He says, if I give away everything, 
Not 5%, not 10%, but like radical generosity and sacrifice. Everything is sacrificed and all the poor are fed and the naked are clothed and I meet the needs of others. But I don't love. It's like I gain nothing. You ever seen sacrificial giving without love? Have you ever seen activism without love? Giant acts of devotion without love? It's actually annoying. Because either the person whines about how hard it is, or they make everyone else feel guilty about how little they're doing. And a new legalism is born. Guilt and shame. Why aren't you as active and sacrificially giving as I am? And then finally, at the end of verse 3, he says, well, let's go all the way to martyrdom. What about giving your body as the ultimate act of sacrifice? Burned at the stake, take a bullet, lay down your life. Not things that often happen in our own country, but around the world, things that Christians have done, people have done. He says, without love, even dying for a cause... It's worthless. So Paul takes this list of all these, like, I think in general we'd be like, oh, wow, like eloquence of speech, tongues of men's and angel, all knowledge and faith and sacrificial giving and mart, like all these things. We'd be like, that's pretty impressive. Like, I'd take that. What, is a, what does a great church look like? We're like, yeah, I'd take that church. But he says, without love, It's noisy, meaningless annoyance. So what is success then? Well, Paul then offers a different metric for the church. And again, I would think he doubles down on the way of Jesus. And he says, it's love. And again, not just like this out there, fuzzy, vague idea or a warm, fuzzy feeling that you pursue whatever feels good inside of you, that's not necessarily love. He goes on then to define love. Again, I think he's taking the teaching of Jesus and he's playing it out where Jesus says, by this will all people know that you're my disciples. By this will all men, by all women will know that you are my disciples by your, by your love for one another. That love becomes this feature that marks the life of a Jesus follower in a different kind of way, in a very specific kind of way, that says we're actually doing something different than the world is doing. And we're not just even using these good things as the metric of success. We're choosing to do this a different way. Well, what does that love look like? Well, I'm glad I asked again. Here we go. He goes on. He explains. Okay, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's a remarkable list. One that's fully embodied in Jesus. 
But when you begin to say, let's press this into our lives and our community, whoo! He says, love is patient. It's that Greek word, macrothumia, long-suffering, or long-wrath, or anger is a long ways off, or long has a long fuse. Patient. Patience is always used toward people, not just circumstances. So love is having a long fuse towards all kinds of people, even those who light your fuse. Love is patient. Love is kind. (laughs) Is there any more unglamorous word than that? Kind. Actually, in our culture, it's almost an insult. He's kind. She's kind. Man, that is, is a, a word with kingdom power, kindness. In fact, it's the word that Paul says in Romans 2, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. This is what God uses to bring about repentance in our life, is that he's actually kind to us. Love does not envy, it's not jealous, filled with resentment, it doesn't boast. It's not a braggart that just talks about oneself all the time. It's not arrogant, puffed up to blow up. It's not rude. We glorify rudeness in our culture. We celebrate the most rude, especially to our enemies. Go to the next one. Does not insist on its own way, like willing to make space. For others, room for others, is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, right? Not laced with cynicism, endures all things. Love never piptoes, that's the Greek word, it doesn't fall down, stay standing doesn't fail, doesn't end. So Paul began this by saying, let me show you a more excellent way. And yes, this applies to the practice of spiritual gifts in a church gathering. Yes. And I would say that this kind of love is the way of Jesus that begins to mark our community. And as we're talking about sexuality and gender, like this is the kind of stuff that Jesus' followers are called to. So I got some questions. Question number one, pronouns. So if a person chooses different pronouns than their biological sex at birth, how should I respond? What do I do with people who have new pronouns or new names? So we live in a world, I imagine you know this, People choose their pronouns and display them more publicly than they used to in Zoom screens, name tags, email taglines. So a person chooses a different set of pronouns. Like, what do I do with that? Next slide. He, him, she, her, they, them, they, zim, am. And there's more that I'm like, I don't even know. I didn't know about those. I don't know what they mean. I'll be really candid with you. I I feel old because I'm like, I I can't keep up. 
I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't know, I don't understand. I, I have a hard time keeping up. And it feels overwhelming. But this has become a battleground for people, right? Do I, do I fight this? Do I honor it? Do I ignore it? What do I do? So recently I was listening to um, a doctor, his name's Mark Yarhouse. Again, recommend his resources to you, Dr. Mark Yarhouse. And then one of his protégés, Julia Sadusky. And they were talking about the same thing, using the same analogy, so I think they worked together, have learned each other, learned from each other. Um, but they offered something that I thought was just helpful to at least have the conversation, so I offer it to you. Um, so, broadly speaking, they say that there are three lenses through which we view the pronoun conversation. The integrity lens, the disability lens, and the diversity lens. So let me explain those. And I'll just say, they're probably in the room today are people who would say, yeah, that's the lens that I use. Or maybe a mixture of the three. So the integrity lens is probably the most often uh, spoken of in church or maybe in, in conservative evangelical churches. And so from this perspective, the, 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 the thing that is at stake is integrity. The thing that is at stake is the truth. The thing that is at stake is, I do not want to participate in a lie. You may have a high view of scripture. You may quote Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, the Bible is seen as the standard of normality for sex and gender. So therefore, at the end of the day, the highest priority is to uphold the integrity of God's word and what is true and a theological conviction. Um, this is Denny Burke. He would hold the integrity lens. So he says, I must never encourage or accommodate transgender fictions with my words. In fact, I have an obligation to expose them. For me, that means that I may never refer to a biological male with pronouns that encourage him to think of himself as a female. Likewise, I may never refer to a biological female with pronouns that encourage her to think of herself as a male. In other words, I have to speak truthfully, and that includes the choice of pronouns that I use. So again, through the integrity lens, look, this is a matter of truth. Anything that doesn't correspond to biological sex is a lie, hence integrity. And there are probably some of you in the room who are like, yeah, heck yeah, yeah, that's it. There are others that hear that and groan. So here's lens number two. This is the disability lens, and some don't like that term either. But this idea of the disability lens is saying that it takes a lot to, to line up for a person's biological sex and their gender identity to be in line. And when this does not happen, it is an unfortunate departure. And yet, again, the Christian version of this is, is that we live east of Eden. We are living in Genesis 3, so yes, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, but Genesis 3. And as a result of sin in the fall, there are things that experiences in our world today as a result of the brokenness of sin where things don't line up as God intended them to be. Here's the thing that the disability lens offers is a measure of compassion. It's probably the emphasis of this lens is to say you're not experiencing things in a way that is helpful for you, you're experiencing distress, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna offer compassion to you. It's an acknowledgement that this person is experiencing something, something that may not resolve on its own without some outside intervention. 
And so for that, they need support. So we're gonna offer empathy and kindness. And again, there's a wide variety of responses under that lens. Which brings us to the third lens. That's the diversity lens. And this would say that differences in gender identity are special and to be celebrated. It's like, like if, you're, if you're trans, if you're experiencing gender dysphoria, like that's not a problem. Nothing needs to be fixed. It's a gift that needs to be celebrated. And this one, I would say, is most common in our culture today. Most common in therapeutic practice today. It's a gift to be celebrated. Celebrated. So now you're like, oh, which lens do I naturally incline myself towards? I think uh, there, there's a few benefits in just having this conversation, is at least it gives you some language to, self, uh, to understand why in our culture today many people are talking past each other. Those that hold the integrity lens and those who have the diversity lens are not having the same conversation. And so Dr. Yarhouse advocates that as Christians, we should look to have an integrated lens where we can learn from some things that are the best of all three. How do we uphold in the integrity of Scripture as those that have a high view of Scripture, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? How could we have a measure of compassion? And the strength that he would say in the diversity lens... I don't think he would agree with the diversity lens, but he would say what happens in this lens is they at least are, they are addressing some core questions that the other lenses may not be talking about, and that's this. The significance and the, the centrality of the question, who am I and where do I belong? So I know that's a big picture framing. Back to the question, should I use pronouns or not? Um, I, I want to commend to you the idea of pronoun hospitality. Okay, this is Greg Cole. This is pronoun hospitality, a willingness to accommodate the pronouns of our transgender neighbors regardless of our own views about the Christian ethics of gender identity. That is, when we order our language toward making sure that the truth of the gospel can be heard in an understandable way by those around us, we are compelled to use pronouns in a way that effectively communicates our respect for transgender people, even if we still believe that followers of Jesus are called to express their gender identity in accordance with their appointed sex. Is that clear? That's a long sentence. The idea of pronoun hospitality frames the conversation differently. Often through the integrity lens, which again, I hold, again, we we are teaching upholding the, the historic Christian sexual ethic in view of marriage. And I would say, is there a way in which we can have compassion on people? and engage them in such a way that there would actually be relationship. Those that I know that most ardently hold to the integrity lens don't have any friends in the trans community and don't have any friends among LGBTQ people. Often the conversation is framed around agreement, disagreement. Do I agree with you or disagree with you? And if I use your new name or use your new pronouns, it means that I agree with you or I I have to show that I disagree with you. And I'm not sure if that's what the conversation has to be about agreement and disagreement. Maybe there's a way of flipping the conversation to be around honor and dishonor. 
Can I honor you as a person that we may have relationship and further conversation? And I know there are some like, no, that's a lie. I can't do it. It it erodes my convictions. Again, I'm, I'm going back to 1 Corinthians 13. What does love look like? For the sake of the kingdom and the sake of the gospel, can I be patient and kind? But I need to rejoice in the truth. Uh huh. Can I bear all things and believe all things? Hope all things? Can I not be rude? Can I not be arrogant? So, again, there's tension, I know. But may you consider pronoun hospitality. What is hospitality? the, The wider picture of biblical hospitality means to love the stranger, to welcome the foreigner. The basic idea of hospitality is, is I don't know you very well, if at all, and so I'm going to do my best to make some space for you, for us to get to know each other. So there's this one article that I read we can go to the next slide. Oh yeah, no, sorry, you're, you're on it already. Sorry. This is one trans person speaking. When they hear Christians insist on using only pronouns that align with a person's appointed sex, they report feeling conflicted. I don't know that I even fully disagree theologically, and at least on some days, at least on some days, but I feel the message that I'm a toxic leper who needs to be banished outside of society. that if we insist that I'm gonna reject your name and your pronouns, it makes them feel like a toxic leper who needs to be banished outside of society. And I just wonder, is that really the best way forward? Would we be willing to offer hospitality in the form of pronouns, not for the sake of complete agreement, but for the sake of having further conversation and relationship? I know that for me. I'll just say this for me. The less I know someone, the more hospitality I want to offer to allow there to be relationship. And there may come a point where that relationship breaks. There's difference. I get that. But I'm going to reserve the harder, deeper, more challenging conversations for the people that I know better. (laughs) One quote from someone at Rachel Gilson, says a gospel of exclusion has no power to save an already banished people. All right, question number two. How about in school? So this was one of the questions that was asked. As a public school teacher, how should I approach teaching sex ed and gender is a choice lessons? How do I talk with students with gender dysphoria? I'm I'm gonna answer the second question first and then go back to the first one. How do I talk with students with gender dysphoria? I'm gonna point you back to the lens conversation. I'm gonna ask you what lens do you primarily operate from? So knowing that, being aware of that may be helpful for how you deal with your students. Um, And then I would also encourage some of the same posture, habits, and practices that I would encourage a parent, a friend, a coworker, family member to have with those who are wrestling with gender identity, which is listen, learn, like learn, like, do, read some books, watch some video, like, do some work, learn. Ask good questions so that you begin to speak into their lives 
from an informed place. There's a, a saying that goes around. It says, if you have met one transgendered person, you have met one transgendered person. Meaning, there's a, as is the case with most people, there's a diversity of experiences. So if you've met one, you've met one. So find out what their story is. Because it may be different than the stereotype or the TV show you watched or the documentary you saw or the video you passed around. So listen and learn and ask good questions. Another reply that this Dr. Yarhouse said is that when he's engaging people uh, and it gets to have that kind of a conversation, he says, I'm meeting you at chapter seven in the story and I haven't heard chapters one through six. I'd love to hear chapters one through six. Because there's a lot usually that goes into a person's story as to how they experience life and the world around them. Again, pointing back to love is patient and kind and not rude and not arrogant and doesn't insist on your own way. Bears things, believes things. Do, do you know what these terms mean? And I'll admit, I don't always know what these terms mean. But sex, do you know what sex is? Biological sex. Do you know what gender is? Do you know what dysphoria is? Do you know what LGBTQIA plus stands for? You can be like, that's ridiculous. They keep adding letters. What What do those letters mean? Do you know what trans means? Do you know what non binary means? Do you know what a mixed orientation marriage is? Do you know what side A is, side B? And again, I was going to take the time to define these for you, but I'm not going to do your work for you. Go figure out what they mean. And then maybe the most important advice I'd give to you if you're engaging someone who in the LGBTQ community or as as a teacher in a classroom, pay attention to the anxiety within you. Pay attention to the anxiety that you're bringing to the relationship and the conversation. This is something I've learned in my pastoral leadership. Pay attention to the anxiety in me because often it's my anxiety, it's my anxiety that causes me to say, do things that I don't want to say or do. So sometimes I feel the need to say something, not because I'm being really helpful, but because I'm really anxious right now. And the only thing I know how to do is to give an answer. Or sometimes I do things or I don't do things because I'm really anxious. And when I can pay attention to my own anxiety and deal with my own anxiety, I'm better prepared to actually have a helpful conversation and show up in somebody else's life. So pay attention to like, oh, am I, do I feel the need to have to give all the right answers because I'm really anxious about being the teacher who has to give all the right answers? Am I really anxious about the pronoun thing because of what, why am I so anxious? What's going on inside of me? Pay attention to your own anxiety. All sorts of responses have more to do with our own anxiety than necessarily the issue at hand. And then I'll add a final word to this question, which is off the screen now. But I will say this, it's getting harder and harder for those who follow Jesus to be teachers in the public school. I get that. I'm married to one. It's really hard to be a follower of Jesus that holds any other view other than the diversity view lens. 
It's hard to be a person who would hold to some measure of understanding of biological sex and gender or defining a man or a woman in rigid terms. And there may come a point in our lifetime as followers of Jesus where you're going to have to change a school. Again, and now you're talking about a whole different conversation. Change careers, change a school, express your gifts and pursue your career in different ways. Um, but not every school is the same, not every district is the same. Uh, and I get it's challenging. But <laughs> I am thankful for whoever asked this question that you are a teacher expressing your love and passions and gifts in the public school. We have many public school teachers and administrators in our, in our church. Grateful for you. Keep following Jesus. Keep holding the tensions. Keep doing things in the way of Jesus for love. One person makes a huge difference. Almost done. Question three. What kind of responses are not helpful to those in the LGBTQ community? And I'm sure there are many that could be listed, and maybe the best ones would be to go ask your friends who are in this community. But a few of them that I am aware of. Not helpful. One-liners that we think win the argument but lose the war. We've done this a lot as Christians. For example, throwing out, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Probably not helpful. <laughs> like, I just don't know who, like, oh, 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 that's funny, or that's like, that isn't, yeah, not helpful. Jokes, comments, toleration of those kind of conversations among Christians just doesn't really help because there are a lot of people who have been really wounded and hurt from Christians around this conversation. Uh, unhelpful responses. Simplistic advice. All you have to do is cast out the demon of homosexuality or all you have to do is pray away the gay or all you have to do is read your Bible more and God will take away your unwanted desires. How does that work for you? Again, I love the Bible. Read scripture. But if the prescription is always just, well, read your Bible and God will change you. I'm like, it doesn't happen that way. Let's talk about how change really happens, right? All you have to do is get married and it'll be fixed. All you have to do is become a Christian and everything will be fine. Again, we often, in our own anxiety to have answers, give out these like simplistic, short, trite, simplistic answers that really aren't helpful. And again, pointing you back to 1 Corinthians 13. Kindness, patience, lack of boasting, not being rude, bearing, enduring. Like that kind of love is so rare. It is powerful. And it's the way of Jesus. Let's keep watching how Jesus lived and engaged people to learn our way. Can we go to the next slide? Man, I could do a whole sermon on this here, but I'm going to give you the 30-second version. Pay attention to what Jesus gets really worked up about. Jesus gets really worked up about foreigners and the nations, speaking to a bunch of Jews. Mark 11. That's when he overturns the tables. He goes to the Temple Mount, and he overturns the tables, and he makes a whip, and he drives them away. Like, Jesus is pretty concerned about that at that point, wouldn't you say? What does he say? He says, you have made a house of prayer for the nations into a den of thieves. 
This was intended to be a house of prayer for the nations to come and experience the one true God. And he is willing to overturn tables and drive people away with the whip when the foreigners and the nations are cut off from or limited from or ripped off in their pursuit of experiencing God. He really cares about that. Matthew 18, 5, Jesus is really concerned about children, the child, you read Matthew 18, 5, he says that anyone who causes a little one to sin, it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck and drown. Wow, that's some strong speech. Then cause a little one to sin. Like, tell me how you really feel, Jesus. Jesus is really concerned about the little one, the child. To the woman caught in adultery, John 8. The crowd is ready to stone her. Jesus stops them and calls them out and restores her. Jesus has this whole chapter in Matthew 23 where it's the woe chapter. Woe to you, woe to you. To those who place heavy burdens on others. He's speaking again to the religious leaders and he gets really worked up And he deeply cares about people who place expectations and extra burdens on people that God didn't intend them to carry and bear. And so Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, blind guides, snakes, broods of vipers, and children of hell to those who distort God's teachings and oppress others through that way. And then Matthew 18, again, he talks about the little ones. And Jesus tells the story about the the man who has a hundred sheep, and he leaves the 99 to go pursue the one. If you read that passage, it starts by not despising the little ones. The little ones are not despised, but pursued. Again, I could go on and on about Jesus' approach of compassion and care, but I could sum it up this way. Jesus is very protective and proactive towards the vulnerable who need protection. He's very protective and very proactive toward those who are vulnerable and need it. And I believe it's not an interpretive leap to apply that to those who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered, questioning, wrestling, dysphoric. So I think they are to be people who are protected and pursued with love. As a pastor who teaches the historic Christian sexual ethic, Are we willing to be like Jesus and protect them, care for them, listen to them, love them, be patient with them, kind to them, make space for them in our lives, invite them into our homes, eat meals around the table? I've been told that the number one question asked toward Christian counselors and therapists from the LGBTQ community, these two questions, Am I wanted? Does God love me? Am I wanted? Does God love me? 
I think I know the answer to those. But often we're not in the same room to have those conversations. Because I am worried about pronouns or other things. I hope you catch my heart and the tension of upholding what is true wrapped in God's deep, deep love. And then I'm done. I'm over my time. Resources, book tables. Um, I'll just point you to these, and I'll post these on Realm so you don't have to write them all down. Go to the next slide. Center for Sexuality and Gender, Preston Sprinkle. His website, Treasure Trove. Like, There's like 15 pastoral papers on all these different questions. There's videos, there's books, there's articles. Again, I'm not saying that everything that he says I agree with, but it's really good. It's a good place to start if you want to look at some articles, videos, um, the like. Classes, resources. Next one. Also, uh, Think. They have this website, and it's by category of some really uh, conversations, and there's some great 10, 15, 30-minute videos, panels, speakers, um, the button, the LGBTQ button on this one. It's really good resources. Next slide. Um, So this is that Preston Sprinkle. He's got a new book coming out here. I think it releases August 1st. Um, Again, upholding the historic Christian sexual ethic and view of marriage goes through a lot of the questions for those in the affirming kind of conversation, um, giving some really good answers to that conversation. Jackie Hill Perry, if you don't know her, read from her or follow her on Instagram. Uh, wonderful sister, uh, speaks truth, freestyle raps. Um, yeah, w- was lesbian. Um, wrestles, still does, wrestle with same-sex attraction married to a guy, has a family, her story of God's grace in her life. Uh, Again, Rachel Gilson, born again, if you can't read it, born again this way. Another person, atheist, freshman in Yale, in the Yale library, snuck a copy of Mere Christianity from her friend, read it in the Yale library, met Jesus. Um, Still struggles with same-sex attraction, is married to a man. Great story to hear and her talk about that. Wesley Hill, um, another story from a, a male perspective. So um, there, there are many, many more, and I can give you some recommendations if you want to read them. Um, do I have another slide after that? Or is that the last one? Ah, yeah, I'll just end with this. Uh, sorry, Kyle and Jessica, I took all your worship time at the end here, but Rod Dreher was asked the question, like, what are you feeling right now? And his response was, I'm neither pessimistic nor optimistic, but I am hopeful. Optimism is like, everything will be fine if we just sit tight and wait. Christian hope is realistic, though. We do live. We do live east of Eden. We do live in a fallen world. Things are not as they are supposed to be. But our suffering is not meaningless. And our suffering finds its fulfillment in the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus. And therefore, we have hope. We have hope of a God who has gotten involved in this world and he's coming back again to put this world to right. And so until that day, until that day of his return, may we continue to walk in the way of Jesus, in the way of love. Let me pray.
Jesus, I offer this to you, uh, feeling inadequate in what I've shared because I know it raises probably more questions than it answers. But I entrust our church and even the different lenses and perspectives and those who are cheering one part and booing another and listening to their neighbor cheer a different part and wrestle with another. Lord, we pray for your help and grace to follow you. And again, I pray not just as topics and ideas, but as people, those in the LGBTQ community that are our friends and family members and neighbors, real people, not just problems to be solved, but people to love. And may we do so with the same measure, Jesus, that you have loved us. And I think of 1 Corinthians 13, and I can't help but read that, Jesus, and think of you and the way that you are patient and kind and all the things in the list. So Lord, as we've received that kind of love from you, may we then be willing to extend hospitality to others. And we learn to do that in a true way that's authentic from the heart. And Lord, may you continue to save and redeem all of us in our great need that only you can give. It's with hope that we pray. It's with hope that we sing. It's with hope that we love. Help us, Lord. Stay in unity in the midst of the tension. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.